Hey there, you are listening to a podcast from the Christian Campus House at the University of Central Missouri. Our mission is to journey with students as they discover and build a deeper relationship with Jesus. And so we hope that our recorded teachings help you discover or build a deeper relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Shakespeare, I'm not 100% sure, but uh, I'm just going to read a portion of it to you. Uh, These terms and conditions create a contract between you and Apple. Please read the agreement carefully. This agreement governs your use of Apple's services through which you can buy, get, license, rent, or subscribe to content or apps as defined below. And in other other in-app services, content may be offered through the services by Apple or a third party. Our services are available for your use in your country or territory of residence. By creating an account for the use of the services in a particular country or territory, you are specifying it as your home country. To use our services, you need compatible hardware, software, and internet access. And then get this. It says fees may apply. Our services performance may be affected by these factors. Using our services and accessing your content may require an Apple ID. An Apple ID is the account you use across Apple's ecosystem. Use of Game Center is subject to the agreement and also requires a Game Center account. Your account is valuable and you are responsible for maintaining its confidentiality and security. Apple is not responsible for any losses arising from the unauthorized use of your account. Please contact Apple if you suspect that your account has been compromised. So I just think... Did anyone else like shed a few tears there? Uh, Shakespeare or like Robert Frost or something like that. Yeah. So uh, I read that not because it is a like literary masterpiece. I read it because no one else here has ever read that. And I'm not even completely convinced that the people who wrote Apple's like terms and agreements, uh, terms and conditions have actually read them either you know i feel like maybe the most common lie ever told is i have read and agreed to apple's terms and conditions raise your hand if you've told that lie okay you guys get out now (laughs) i'm liars here um but it's it's just so interesting because it feels like they write them in a way where it's like no one's ever gonna read that but we go ahead and say we have anyway so we enter into like this agreement with Apple without actually being aware of what kind of agreement we're in. So we don't actually know what the terms and conditions are, but we're like bound by them in some ways. And I just think that's interesting to be in an agreement with Apple that we actually don't know what all that agreement entails. And I think the same thing happens oftentimes in our relationship with God, where we're in this sort of agreement with God. We're in a relationship with God, but we don't know what the terms and conditions are necessarily. Like we've entered into relationship with them. But we don't always know what all that entails as as an agreement. And so, like, scripture doesn't talk about, like, terms and conditions. It's not the language it it uses. But it does talk a lot about covenants. And that's kind of what our text in Hebrews is about uh, tonight. This idea, this concept that we see all throughout scripture of a covenant. So there's a definition of it right there. I'd be curious if someone else wants to throw out, like, when you just hear the word covenant, what's, what's maybe a definition that you would come up with? personally. 
Yeah, because I do. I think when I hear the word coven, I, my mind goes to like marriage or something like that. I feel like that's the one primary place we see covenants in uh, kind of our world today. Like very commonly, I think is like, well, two people got up and they entered into like a marriage covenant or something like that. They made vows to one another. Uh, but for our purposes and and just as we consider how that word is used in scripture, it means a lot of different things. Like even in ancient times, a covenant could be made between two people. So, and that's true today, like marriage. But in ancient times, a king would make a covenant with his people and say, hey, I'm going to like provide for you. I'm going to protect you. And you guys will obey kind of my, like submit to my authority. So they would make a covenant with one another. But in scripture, that, that word is used when two people make a covenant with one another, like David and Jonathan make a covenant together. But then God can also make covenants with individual people. God makes a covenant with David individually. But then the way Hebrews talks about this covenant idea, it's talking about a, that agreement, really, a commitment between God and his people as a whole. But it's like an agreement that shapes the way we interact with God. If, if we're using Apple-like lingo here or jargon, it's almost like a covenant is the operating system for our lives and our relationship with God. Like the covenant we're in with God is what shapes the way we live and interact with God. It shapes all our functional uh, doings in our relationship with God. So that's kind of what our text is about tonight, where the author of Hebrews is talking to his readers. And if you have been with us, you kind of know he's, he's writing to readers who come from a Jewish background. So people who would have been under what we call the old covenant, or you could even like interchange that word covenant for testament they they lived in new old testament times but that means essentially they were under the old covenant and uh so he's writing these people that were under the old covenant the agreement where god vows to care for and favor the israelite people or the jewish people and then they commit or agree to uh submit to god and, and follow his laws um and so the author is writing to those people that are under the old covenant. And so that's why he's going to talk about it a lot tonight. But in the text we're in tonight, the author like shifts gears and he says, but don't miss out on the new covenant. Like he brings up this idea, like you guys are so used to living under the old covenant, this old operating system for our relationship with God. But Hey, times have changed at the end of our text today. We're not going to read this verse, but he says, what is old is becoming like obsolete. The word he is using there essentially means like it's getting so worn out that it's like barely hanging on by a thread. He's saying, hey, not much longer. You're not going to be able to deceive yourselves into uh, like living under the old covenant. The new covenant has come. So don't keep living with the old operating system. It's like, hey, it's time for an update on your iPhone kind of thing. Don't keep operating with the old thing. And what's interesting about that, too, is that. Hebrews is written in like 67 AD, 68 AD maybe. And the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman Empire in 70 AD. And so the author is kind of like writing, inspired by God ahead of time saying, listen, like the new covenant has come and your idea of the old covenant is not going to hold on much longer. Like it's about to be obsolete is what he says, because the temple is going to be destroyed. And that's where people under the old covenant would worship, would worship God. And so the author is saying, hey, there's this new covenant. And for us tonight, it's really worth paying attention to because this new covenant the author is going to talk about, it's not just some religious idea that was helpful for the readers of Hebrews in the first century AD. Like, 
it's really helpful and important for us to not for us right now like tonight because the new covenant is the operating system for our current relationship with god it's the covenant that we're living under it's our the covenant we're in with god essentially if we're followers of jesus and so as we're looking at the text tonight we're essentially about to look at the terms and conditions of our relationship with god so check out how the author sets it up we're going to be in hebrews chapter 8 it's hebrews chapter 8 we're going to start in verse 6 and so you can just see how the author sets up this idea of the the old covenant transitioning or giving way to the new covenant hebrews 8 verse 6 We'll, we'll have it on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. But this is what the author says. He says, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs. He's comparing them to the Old Testament priests. And he says his ministry is superior to theirs because the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. And so he's, he's just saying that Jesus has a more important job than the old covenant priests because the covenant that Jesus is kind of operating and overseeing is a way more important, better covenant than the, the old covenant that the old Testament priests were working with. But the author is like going to remind the readers of the terms and conditions of the new covenant, like the promises of the new covenant. But before he does that, he reminds his readers in Hebrews of the problem with the old covenant. So he's going to, he's going to say, Hey, here, don't forget what the promises, the, the terms and conditions are of the new covenant. But before we do that, let me remind you with the primary problem of the, the old covenant. So uh, we see that in the next couple of verses there. And just check, check the verses out and see if you can spot the primary problem with the old covenant based on what the author of Hebrews says here. Uh, so verse 7 and 8, I guess, yeah, starting in verse 7, says, For... If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, and then he's about to quote Jeremiah, who is a prophet who kind of lived in like the 500s AD, and he was like a mouthpiece for God during that time. And God used Jeremiah to explain what the new covenant was going to be like. And this is like literally five centuries before Jesus stepped onto the scene, almost six centuries. And, uh, God speaks through Jeremiah and says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So looking at those verses or looking in your Bible there, what would you say is the primary problem with the, the old covenant? pretty simply put it's just people where it's like it says god found fault with the people and said the days are coming and then it says they did not remain faithful to my covenant and it's like weird to read maybe that first verse if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant it feels weird to say that like oh wait didn't god like create the old covenant you can't say there's something wrong with it and i don't think that's what the author of hebrews is necessarily saying i think he's talking about how it's like incomplete the old covenant's it was never meant to be the end-all, be-all. It was just pointing to something better. It was a glimpse of something greater, which is the language we've been using as we've been walking through Hebrews. The Old Covenant was never meant to solve the problem, but the primary problem with the Old Covenant, the reason it wasn't good enough and that we 
he needed a new covenant was because there was so much sin and brokenness in people. Like there's that current inside of us that is always moving us toward what is opposite of God's desire, like what, what's opposite of God's plan and, and design for us. And so God sees that problem. That's the primary problem of the old covenant is that people are so broken that they're not able to uphold their side of the terms and conditions of their relationship with God. And so God promises them that he's going to create a new covenant. And, and that comes like as a huge relief to the people, I think, because God is looking at his people when this passage in Jeremiah is written. He's looking at his people who are about to be taken captive by the Babylonians because of how sinful and how rebellious they've been. So they have like broken the covenant and God is allowing this like foreign nation to come in, take them captive. And it's going to be really messy and bad for them for years and years and years and years. But right before they're taken captive, God says, hey, it's going to get bad, but I'm not giving up on you. Like you guys broke the covenant. You turned your back on me, but I'm not going to turn my back on you. I'm going to create a new covenant. So he gives them like this glimmer of hope even before they're taken off into uh, exile. And he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And so God gives the Jewish people this hope for a new covenant in the future. But for us here tonight, it's not like this uh, fantasy that's far off in the future, like this idea of the new covenant. Like it is the covenant. It is the operating system for our relationship with God right now. So everything he's about to say about the new covenant is true for us right now if we have a relationship with Jesus, which is really, really cool that we're not looking into the future hoping that something happens. It's something that has already been initiated and that we get to reap the benefits of. Like we can now accept the terms and conditions of this new way of interacting and relating to God. And that is a huge deal. And so uh, God is essentially going to say, hey, here's what the new covenant is going to look like. And he gives like these four promises that come with the new uh, covenant. And this is where those little sticky notes on your seat or near your seat come in. Uh, we're just going to have each one of those sticky notes represent a different different one of the promises that we see or a different sort of like term or condition of uh, the new covenant that we read about here. So some of you guys also have uh, different colors. I ran out of, uh, I think, like yellow uh, sticky notes. So some of you guys have two white sticky notes. And that just means that um, that you are not welcome in the new covenant. So, um, so this first one, take your white sticky note here. Should be the one on top. The white sticky note here. And it's not even a sticky note. It's just a white piece of paper, essentially. But it's a white note. Take that one. And then this first promise that we see in this text, the author of Hebrews says, hey, the new covenant is here. It's way better than the old covenant. Don't keep going back to the old thing. Let me remind you now of the promises of the new covenant. You already know what the problem with the old covenant is. Let me show you the promises of the new covenant. And the first promise of the new covenant is transformation. So you can write transformation down on the white, uh, the white uh, piece of paper. Uh, and there are also pens. There are a bucket of pens uh, up here on my left and on my right, too, if you need to grab one. Uh, so you can write transformation there. And we'll look at verse 10, uh, which is where we see this promise. And, I, and I'll just keep talking for a second, too, while everyone's getting settled. What's cool about this is that this isn't even like some other person. All of Scripture is like... We read this in uh, Hebrews already that the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. And then if you look in 
Second uh, Timothy, it talks about how all scripture is God-breathed. So it doesn't matter, like, who wrote what. Like, it's all God's inspired word. But I really love this because these are, like, words straight from the mouth of God. Like, he's speaking through Jeremiah, but, like, spoke to Jeremiah. And then Jeremiah is just, like, spitting back out what God said. And God said these things that are about us and, like, the, the people who get to live under God's new covenant. So the first promise there is transformation. So if you check out verse 10 there, he says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time. Talking about after the uh, Babylonian exile and then really looking forward to when Jesus arrives. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And so if you kind of look at the old covenant or the old operating system for people's relationship with God, there were, I mean, look at the book of Leviticus. If you've ever tried to read through the book, uh, like the Bible in a year, you probably get to Leviticus and you're like, I don't, there's got to be a different plan to get through the Bible in a year because you keep getting to Leviticus and it's like, hey, don't boil a baby goat in its mom's milk or something. It's like, well, thanks. Like, I wasn't planning on it, but now that you said it, I'll be sure to avoid it. But it's just like so many laws. And so if you read through Old Testament texts, you see 613 different laws that God's people were expected to obey. They're kind of the terms and conditions of their relationship, of that covenant. And people struggle to obey each one of those commands or each one of those laws because there was something inside each person that was broken and sinful. And that's where the new covenant is different. That's where the new covenant is better. It's, it's, and one thing to be clear about too is that it's not that God stops caring about obedience under the new covenant. It's not that God like looks at his people and it's like, hey guys, you screwed it up so much. I'm gonna create a new covenant with you where it doesn't matter what you do. You can do whatever you want now and it's all good. Like, God doesn't do that. That's not what the new covenant is. And that's helpful, I think, because sometimes you can contrast them too much, where it's like the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is about obedience, and the New Covenant is all about grace. And it's like, that's kind of true. But in the New Testament, like, we're still expected to obey. God still wants what's best for us. And so he still expects us and wants us to obey him. Obedience still matters. <coughs> like, look in the New Testament, and if you were to flip through the pages of the New Testament, which is kind of like the scripture for New Covenant people, flip through those pages and kind of make a little tally mark for every time you see a command statement like uh, forgive one another or do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit or uh, like do everything without grumbling or complaining. Every time you see a command statement, you would end up with like a thousand plus tally marks. I think I read something today about like a thousand and fifty command statements are made in the New Testament. And so that seems weird where it's like more commands in the New Testament. It's not that the New Covenant is less about obedience. God still cares about obedience. But this verse is really important, especially for us New Covenant people. It's really important because it's saying that the way we obey God is different now. And the way we obey God is better because under the Old Covenant, the only force that drives you to obey God is a list of laws, 613 laws, and your emotional response to them, essentially, where I can read the laws, and I, most people, would probably feel fear. And you see that a lot in the Old Testament, where it's fear of God. And that's a good thing, to recognize God is awesome, and 
like, can do whatever he wants. But I think fear would be the motivating force a lot of times that would drive people to obey, where I look at the laws and I recognize, oh, God could snap his fingers like Thanos and turn me into dust if I didn't obey him, so I'm going to obey him. Or you look at other places and you realize, oh, maybe it's gratitude. Like, maybe people recognize, oh, God has been really good to me, so now I'm going to obey him. So if you read the book of Psalms, you'll read about David, and he talks about how much he loves God's law and how good God has been to him. And so David talks about being obedient because he's like grateful for what God has done for him. And so it's maybe fear, it's maybe gratitude, but the, the dilemma there, the, the issue is that whether it's fear or gratitude or some other emotion, our emotions are so fickle. Like they're just constantly changing. So if I'm not feeling especially fearful or especially grateful one day, then my drive to obey is gone. Like there's no force to drive me to obey anymore. And that's where the New Testament is different. The New Covenant is different because under the New Covenant, the force that drives us to obey and live the way that God desires, it's not a list of laws and our emotional response to them, but it's something, something at the core of who we are that's changed, something that changes our desires from the inside out like aligning our hearts more and more with God's heart. And it's not a pressure from the outside, but it's a person living on the inside. And so in Old Testament times, they wouldn't have had much of a framework for like the Holy Spirit, which is what we would call that in Christianity. They wouldn't have had a huge understanding of what the Holy Spirit was. They knew about the Spirit of the Lord, and you can read about that in a few places in the Old Testament. But their understanding of God's spirit was just that, okay, every once in a while, God's spirit comes to help like a king or like a ruler so that they can defeat an enemy or something like that. But then God's spirit's gone and like doesn't help them with any, it's like for a very specific cause. So the, the thought of God's spirit coming to live in people and like changing them from the inside out, that would have been revolutionary for them. So they read a passage like this. I don't think they fully understand or attach that to the spirit, but we can look at it and recognize, oh, God promises that under the new covenant, there's going to be something inside of us that enables and empowers us to be obedient to God in a way that people weren't able to be before. And we know that that's the Holy Spirit, like God's spirit, if we're a follower of Jesus, takes up residence in us and empowers us to live in a way that we couldn't live on our own. So if you're a follower of Jesus, the force that will empower you to choose patience over irritability or forgiveness over passive aggressive revenge or lust or not lust, love over lust or humility over selfishness, the the force that enables you and empowers you to do that is not something outside of you, it's already something that lives inside of you and that's a promise of the new covenant that you can take to the bank. So the that's the first promise we see there so you can write transformation on that card if you have it the next one is belonging so on the pink card you can go ahead and write belonging and the verse there that goes with this one is pretty simple it's just right after that last one so the word is belonging and god promises here uh this he says i will be their god and they will be my people I will be their God, and they will be my people. And when I read that passage, I almost hear and like sense a tone of like relief, which I I think is um, a healthy way of like viewing. 
this relationship with God and kind of the promise that he's making here, just like this sense of relief. I remember when my wife, uh, Ronnie, and I started dating, um, or guys, while we were dating, I was so nervous all the time that some guy who looked less like Pete Davidson would come along <laughs> and like sweep her off her feet and make her like fall for him instead of me. And I was so like nervous about that all the time because I really liked her. And uh, Ronnie and I both worked jobs one summer while we were dating uh, that forced us to kind of like travel across the country with like teams of college students that were in college with us. And uh, I was on a team that had a couple of girls on it. And Ronnie liked both of the girls on my team just fine. But I could tell that she was like keeping tabs on them as well, like paying attention, like making sure there's nothing like flirtatious happening between me and these other two girls. And uh, like I could just tell she was paying attention to that kind of thing. And there were originally three girls on that team, but then one of them laughed at a joke I made and Ronnie killed her. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, but it's like, I, Ronnie was nervous about it, but then on Ronnie's team, there were two guys, and one of the guys on her team that she spent the whole summer with was her second cousin, so I was like, not super concerned about him. He was from southern Missouri, though, so you can never be too sure. And then there was another guy on her team that was just the most handsome, musically talented, charismatic guy in the world. And I remember just like a pit in my stomach like all summer long. It's like I'm supposed to, we were like helping at church camps all summer. And I just remember like I'm supposed to be like helping these kids like learn about Jesus or something. And I'm just thinking about Ian Whitmore. And if that stinking guy with his nicely groomed eyebrows gets Ronnie to fall in love with him, I'm going to be so upset and it's going to ruin my life. And I just remember feeling so like sick to my stomach all summer long. But then when the summer ends, and it's like, oh, we still love each other, and we still want to be together, and then we get engaged that fall, and then we get married the following summer, it's like, there's like a sense of relief that comes with that, where all of a sudden, you're like, okay, everything is okay. Like, I don't have to compete for your attention, I don't have to compete for your affection, there's no other, like, threat that's gonna, like, swoop in, or anything like that. You, like, we could look at each other on our, our wedding day, and be like, wow, you are my husband, or you are my wife, and there's a sense of belonging there, not in like a weird possessive way, but in this sort of like relieving, peaceful way where it's like, wait a second, like I belong to you and you belong to me, and I think that's sort of what's happening here in this text where like just this sense of relief where I think marriage is just a little tiny picture, and this is what it's meant to be, a little tiny picture of the sort of belonging that all of us were created for in our relationship with God. Like we were all created to have a deep sense of belonging and that comes primarily from a relationship with God where you belong completely to God like you worship him and you serve him only and there's nothing else competing for like our affection or our attention and then we can look at God and have confidence that there is nothing else in creation that he cares about more than us that there's like he has committed himself to us so that we belong to him and he belongs to us and we don't have to worry about something else stealing his attention and him forgetting about us. Like, he loves us that deeply and there's nothing else he loves more than us. And it's like that sense of belonging that we were created for. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been welcomed into the new covenant and God has promised that you belong to him 
and that he belongs to you. And so you can write belonging on that, that uh, piece of paper sticky note if you haven't already. The next one is relationship. And this one, you might have a white piece of paper. You might have a yellow. Um, just imagine that it's yellow. Uh, so verse 11 there. Um, and you can write down relationship. Verse 11, it says, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So he, God, again, is talking about this new covenant that he's going to form between his people and him. He says they won't have to teach their neighbors, say to one another, say to one another know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And so a key difference uh, between the old covenant and the new covenant is kind of the way you enter into the covenant. So the old covenant you were born into, like it's a family thing. God chose the Israelite people, the Jewish people. And so if you're born into a Jewish family, you're good to go. Like you're in the old covenant. If you are not born in a Jewish family, you can kind of get close to the covenant community. Like you could do some of the same things. You could come to the temple, but you had to stay pretty far on the outside of it. So you could do some stuff, but you're pretty limited, and you'd also have to get circumcised, which is not great. Like, not an ideal way of having to, uh, like, approach this, this God that you wanted to have a relationship with. But um, the Old Covenant, the way you enter into it is essentially by being born into the right family or being born into a certain family. But the New Covenant is different, where it's not based on the family you're born into. It's based on your faith. Like it's based on faith in Jesus, and that is huge because that has nothing to do with like your lineage or anything like that. It's based on your faith in Jesus, and faith, simply put, is just depending on Jesus for salvation and for leadership in this life. I feel like that's a concise definition of what faith is. If you if you need that, maybe write that down. Faith is depending on Jesus for salvation for leadership in this life. It's not just like, oh, Jesus is punching my ticket to heaven. I'm also looking to him as my king and my leader in this life. Uh, and so God is speaking through Jeremiah saying, hey, under the new covenant, you don't have to remind people who were just born into a family to actually seek me because every single person who is in the new covenant now will know me personally as their savior and king. Like you can't enter the new covenant unless you have come to know God personally. But then God is also saying, like, every single person, no matter who they are or what their background is, gets to know me. Like, we get to know God personally. And so God promises that all people will know him personally. And he says, uh, he says, they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And so the author of Hebrews, like Hebrews, when he translates that, it's in Greek. And when he says from the least of them to the greatest, he's literally using the greek words micro and mega so he's like from the micro people to the mega people and i don't think he's talking about like super tall people like uh aaron gordon in the nba yeah or or rachel because she how tall are you five foot so micro to mega you know all people it doesn't matter how tall or short you are but i also think about like just like what that means in our world then, like if all people, regardless of background and like who they are or status or whatever, get to have personal relationship with God, that's a huge deal because that means 
it's not just the members of the mega church over in, in Kansas City. Like, it is them. If they have a relationship with Jesus, it is them. But it's also the 17 members of the little tiny micro church out in the country just south of Nob Noster. Like, God wants relationship with those people equally. And then even in this room, it's not just the people who have a really big personality and are maybe up front more often or they seem to know a lot about the Bible it's not just the people with the big mega personalities. It's the people with the little micro personalities that want to sneak in and sneak out because they're a little bit nervous that they, they don't belong here because they don't know enough or they haven't been around long enough. Like God looks at both, both ends of that spectrum and wherever you fall on that spectrum, and he says, you get to know me personally. Like it's not just the people who have studied enough to like know me and ascend to a certain spiritual level. It's like all people who enter into this new covenant by God's grace through Jesus get to know me personally. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, whether you recognize it or not, whether you're aware of this term and condition of the new covenant, like you know God personally, which is a really cool thing. And so God promises that in the new covenant. So then the last thing, that one was relationship. And then your last sticky note there is forgiveness. These are all things that God has promised. We're reading through the terms and conditions of the new covenant, of our relationship with, with God. So forgiveness on that last sticky note. And God says this, and it's a promise. He says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So under the old covenant, uh, God still forgave people's sins, but it was kind of different than the way he forgives sin now. So all throughout the Old Testament time, it's almost like God had been putting, or people had been putting their sin on like Jesus' tab without really recognizing it. It's like uh, they're sacrificing animals, which it's delaying when the debt had to be paid. Like they're, uh, they're kind of incurring debt, spiritual debt by sinning. And then they sacrifice animals, which just de delays their payment on that until Jesus arrives and, and dies for their sins. But what's what's different about the new covenant then is that we're not like, there's no debt over our heads anymore. Like our sin is forgiven completely by God through Jesus. And so because we're on this side of Jesus' death on the cross, it's not like we're racking up debt that will one day be paid off in the future and we have to hope that someone shows up to pay the debt for us. It's like already prepaid. Like all of our debt has been pre-canceled on the cross through Jesus if we're under the new covenant. Like we're never incurring debt. And I love how God says there, I'll remember their sins no more. It's not just that God forgives our sins. It's that he forgets them. He promises to forget them. And I think it's really just a, a figure of speech that God is using to describe how thorough his forgiveness for us is. But I, I imagine you go to God and you're praying and you're like, man, God, I am so sorry. Like, I feel like I'm just constantly apologizing and asking for forgiveness for the same sin, like the same sin I committed two days ago and then three days before that. And God is like, what do you mean? What sin? And then you're like, well, I, I guess if you like really want me to rehash all the specifics of it, it all started when I was, and then he's like, no, no, no. I mean, what sin? I'm trying. I'm thinking back over the last couple of weeks, and I, I don't see any sin. I don't think it must have slipped my mind. Like there's no recollection of that in my memory. It's not stored anywhere. I'm not holding on to anything. I don't remember any sin. And 
I just think, man, my God promises to forgive us so thoroughly that it's like we've never sinned in the first place. And it's not that what we've done doesn't matter. It does. Sin is still serious. Like you see that in the New Testament. It's not that what we've done doesn't matter. It's that what Jesus has done matters more. It's not that what we've done doesn't matter. It's that what Jesus has done matters more. And so God promises that kind of forgiveness in the new covenant. And he lays out these terms and conditions that if we're followers of Jesus, we're guaranteed that kind of forgiveness, which is really cool. Um, yeah. So here's what I want us to do. If these are the four primary promises that you got on your uh, sticky notes, the four primary promises of uh, the new covenant, the terms and conditions of our relationship with God, uh, they are like most terms and conditions that maybe up until now we haven't been very aware of them or like actively thinking about them. And so I want to just take some time to like fully accept the terms and conditions of our relationship with God. So this might be a little silly, but I'm going to uh, write my name on each one of the individual sticky notes to signify that I have read and accept the terms and conditions of the new covenant. Um, and so in the next couple of moments, if you're a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to, uh, to do the same thing, um, to sign your name on each sticky note to acknowledge that you have read and that you agree to the, the terms and conditions of the new covenant. We are so glad that you decided to listen to this teaching from the Christian Campus House. Join us live at our weekly gatherings on Wednesday nights at 7.30 p.m. during the school year. If you have questions or you want to talk about what it looks like to take the next step in your faith journey, email us at cch.digdeeper at gmail.com. That's cch.digdeeper at gmail.com. We hope to see you soon.